What will the future be like? Part of us loves guessing all the cool stuff that might come in the future, you know, because we're so curious. Uh, we look back, have you seen the 1989 film, Back to the Future, Part 2? It has its own predictions about the year 2015, which is amazing as already four years ago. <laughs> now, there are certain predictions that Back to the Future 2 nailed, uh, certain predictions that went just way too far, and others still that didn't go far enough. So this movie was spot on that we would use fingerprints and eye scanners everywhere. I mean, we use them even to open our phones. The movie was spot on with the presence of flat screen TVs. It was even spot on that we would use video chatting instead of calling. Uh, scary enough, the movie even predicted that cities in the future would gentrify and reestablish town centers while leaving behind surrounding neighborhoods. Spot on in a lot of ways. Yet still, Back to the Future 2 went laughably too far in a lot of different areas, such as fashion. If you've seen the movie, there are no self-drying jackets. There are no self-tying shoes. As far as cars, they don't fly. They didn't fly in 2015. As far as I know, they don't fly now. And as far as hoverboards, you know, skateboards that float in the air, well, those just aren't a thing at all. But there remain many realities about 2015 that Back to the Future 2 did not even anticipate at all. Probably the biggest, most glaring, most world-changing reality is the internet. There is no internet in, back, in 2015 version of Back to the Future 2. And there were no smartphones that opened the internet. They did not anticipate people being hooked to looking at a piece of glass that they keep in their phone, keep in their pocket in the year 2015. What will the future be like? We're kind of consumed with what's coming ahead. You know, we're not just curious about what's ahead. You know, we're also, if we're honest, we're anxious about what's ahead as well. It's just a world of uncertainty. We're uncertain of how we'll make ends meet. We're uncertain of where our kids will end up. We're uncertain about our careers, uncertain about our country, uncertain about our health, what all those things will be in the future. So as much as we can, we try to minimize that uncertainty by planning. Now, as we'll see as we look in this passage of James today, planning isn't bad in itself. James will close chapter 4 by saying that there is a way, though, that planning can be bad. Just like it has been with other areas of our lives that James has highlighted throughout his letter, whether it's our relationships, whether it's our speech, or whether it's our desires in our hearts, so also our plans can show the divided nature of our hearts in general. Divided between living unto ourselves and living for the Lord. So we're going to continue in James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. If you're looking at a Bible that looks like this uh, in the pew rack in front of you, you'll find it on page 1013. This is James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live 
and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. There is a good way and a bad way to plan. Now, not to disappoint you, but this sermon is not about how to formulate a plan for retirement. It is not about how to formulate a plan to get out of debt or to get into college or to get a more stable relationship. No, this passage deals with the heart of how we plan ahead, the heart of how we think about the future. This passage deals with what drives us the most. It deals with our view of the world. Without this in place, none of our plans will be what they ought to be. So here's the main point of our time together. Good plans for the future quickly acknowledge that there is much we do not control and quickly trust the good God who does control it. Good plans for the future quickly acknowledge that there is much we don't control and quickly trust the good God who does control it. We'll flesh out some of what this looks like in real life, good planning, and we'll show the opposite of what good planning is. We'll process this passage in two overarching points, the heart of bad plans and the heart of good plans, and just kind of see the characteristics of each. So first, the heart of bad plans. The heart of bad plans. Most of us have heard statements about planning that make it onto posters. Statements like, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Aim at nothing, and you will surely hit it. Plan for the worst, but hope for the best. Catchy cliches that make it onto posters. You know, we're familiar with bad planning, but probably less familiar with the heart behind bad planning. So the first characteristic of the heart behind bad plans is presumption. The heart that makes bad plans is presumptuous. Now we're going to tell, we're going to say what that means. This comes out throughout this passage. Now first you see verse 13. You start right at the beginning. You see it's, it's a quote. It's a hypothetical quote. You could tell James says such and such a town. It's not a real quote. It's just something that someone might say. But it represents a new phenomenon in the first century Near East, in the Mediterranean world of the time. In, the, in that time and place, there, there was new and more commercial activity. Markets were opening up, and people flocked to towns, especially on the Mediterranean Sea. And so money was to be had. People left, and people went. Money was guaranteed. So this hypothetical quote in verse 13 is not much different than an invitation to get in on the ground floor of a new and exciting company. It's not much different to become a representative of a new network marketing scheme. Sorry if that hits home to some of you. Here's a chance to make a profit fast, to get rich quick. Now, what's the problem with this mindset of verse 13? Well, James says it's presumptuous. It's presumptuous. This kind of planning presumes that tomorrow is predictable. It presumes that tomorrow is predictable, that the future will unfold exactly as we plan and exactly as we finish, as we envision it. So it would be presumptuous for me right now, today, after church, 
to go to the tattoo parlor and tell him, on my left arm, I want you to put Cleveland Browns 2019-20 Super Bowl champions. <laughs> I, yes, I am holding out hope, but that would be presumptuous. It would be presumptuous. Do you remember how James opens his letter? He talks about how we respond when we meet trials of various kinds. You see how he phrases that very, very carefully. We meet trials. Because nobody plans trials in hard times. We meet them. So here in James chapter 4, he says, You do not know what tomorrow will bring. The problem is when we presume that we do know what tomorrow will bring. And how many times, friends, have we experienced this truth in everyday life? That we don't know what tomorrow will bring? There are certain days, you think, in the history of our country. Days when everything changed so much just in one day. Maybe it's the Declaration of Independence or the assassination of President Lincoln or the Great Depression or Pearl Harbor. I think in our time recently, the difference between September 10th, 2001 and September 11th, 2001. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. Now, we felt this truth in our own lives as well. We do not know what tomorrow will bring. Sometimes that's for good. Sometimes it's just an unexpected sweet gift from the Lord. Think of the times when uh, us in here met our spouses. When did we, we didn't plan to meet our spouse that day, but God gave it that day. But more often than not, we do not know what tomorrow will bring. It comes with an unplanned, unexpected tragedy. You know, we didn't plan for that day being the first day we indulged in a certain sin. We didn't plan for that day to be diagnosed with a disease. We didn't plan for that day to lose someone we love. So we talk about, uh, we even remember where we were, what we were doing when we received this unexpected, unplanned news. It's just part of what it means to live in a fallen world. We do not know what tomorrow will bring. And this is the same fallen world that the people James is writing to lived in as well. Now, if we're honest, we don't even, we not, even, not only do we not know what tomorrow will bring, we don't even know what the next five or ten minutes will bring. Well, you have a good guess. It'll probably be me talking. <laughs> but still, bad plans call the unpredictable predictable. Bad plans are presumptuous. Isn't this the same warning that Jesus gave about his return? That we just assume that tomorrow is predictable. And what did Jesus say? The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We do not presume that tomorrow is predictable. But this kind of planning is presumptuous, but it also presumes that life here keeps on going. It presumes that life here just keeps on going. You know, that's how we're trained to think, isn't it? And we're told to look ahead to the next stage, look ahead to the next milestone, to the next better job, the next promotion, the next vacation, the next weekend, the next season. We can get so caught up in tomorrow and what's ahead, we just don't enjoy today. We're not present, thoughtful, and faithful today. What's more, you look at verse 13 these hypothetical plans of these people. 
let's just say that they go well, that they succeed in their venture. But you know what? What happens after that? And what happens after that? Regardless of how good your plans are, regardless of how good you are at executing your plans and fulfilling them, life remains short. Life remains short. Bill Gates, you probably heard of him. Uh, He's the guy, he's the founder of Microsoft for a very long time, was the richest man in the world. Uh, He was asked what he could wish for in life. Reportedly, Bill Gates said, more time, more time. You know, we are so obsessed with saving time, but it's presumptuous to think that we can save it in the long run. Time is running out. We are a mist, James says. Maybe you've seen the steam after you take a hot shower in your bathroom. If you got a window in your bathroom, you open up that window, that steam, poof, it's gone. We are a mist. So presumption, this this heart that presumes, fails to consider the shortness of life. It just presumes that life will keep on going, at least here. This kind of planning presumes that we can control much more than we can control. James calls the plans of verse 13 arrogant. You boast out of your arrogance. You know, you might not think to yourself, well, the way I think of the future, I don't necessarily think that's arrogant. But I wonder, especially the way we react to when our plans go kaput, even in small ways, shows a little bit of arrogance in our hearts. You think of the regularity of life every day. You know, every day you have your routine. You do this and this and this every day. You do this every week. You do this every month. Kind of that regularity gives the appearance that we have much more control than we actually do. And when something goes awry, we can panic and freak out because we realize we are not in control. We realize how arrogant we have been to think that we are in control. This is what the Greeks called hubris, arrogance. It's this attitude, maybe we don't say this clearly with our mouths, but it's the functional attitude of our hearts. Remember that poem, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And James pulls no punches with how he describes this arrogant presumption and how we think of the future. You notice that he calls it evil. He calls it evil. It's here in this vision of the future, God is completely out of the picture. And while man is elevated in God's place, the heart of bad plans is presumption. Bad plans presume that tomorrow is predictable, presume that life keeps going, presume that we control it all. Now, when we evaluate further the heart behind bad plans, I think we see one more major characteristic. Bad plans come from wrong priorities. A heart that makes bad plans, this does not think of the future well, has wrong priorities. Again, we're going to go back to verse 13. Look at verse 13 again. What's the end game in verse 13? I'm not talking about Avengers. What is the goal of verse 13? Those last three words. Read it again. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and make a prophet. Here are plans that have the concern only with the bottom line. 
That's the ultimate goal of these plans. Make money. Make a profit. Now, I want to be clear on something. I want to clarify something. Does James or the Bible as a whole say that making a profit is a bad thing? Absolutely not. No. The Bible speaks several times that workers should get wages for their labor. The Bible even speaks against those who withhold wages from workers. James himself is going to do that in the next chapter. But, there is a but. If making a profit is our only concern, is our highest priority, then what does that say about our heart in general? What does that say about what our heart loves the most and finds the most important? If making a profit is our top priority, if we're driven most by the bottom line, You think about this, if making a profit is our only concern, our highest priority, then won't we end up skipping over what we know is right in order to keep making a profit? That's what James says in verse 17. Know what they should do, but fail to do it. You know, that's why the book of Proverbs so often talks about the rich, how they're susceptible to corruption. Because they're driven by the bottom line. That's what they find the most important. In order to keep the bottom line, they'll use things like dishonest scales. They know they're wrong, but they have to do it to keep their bottom line. They'll oppress the poor. They know that's wrong, but they have to do it in order to keep the bottom line. Wrong priorities. Here in James, James points out money. Y'all, we got to be honest with ourselves. Isn't there more wrong priorities than just money? Can't we be driven wrongly by other things? You think about you, think about yourself. What's the goal of your plan? What is it that you're hoping for, striving toward, that you think will give you stability? Was that person or object or commodity or status that if you had it, then finally you could breathe and rest? When that ultimate priority is anything besides God, now friends, we will always be afraid of losing it. And we will never feel like we have enough of it paranoid, anxious. I've shared this quote from David Foster Wallace. He's an author. Um, I've shared this quote in the past, but he makes this point so well. He says that anything we worship or anything we have as the highest priority besides God or even besides some spiritual thing, he's not even writing as a Christian. He's just thought this through really well. He says, if that's anything besides God, it will eat you alive. It will eat you alive. Here's what he says. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. When the goal of our plans is anything besides God, it shows that we have the wrong priorities. 
And we'll end up skipping over what God wants us to do in order to get what we want. This gives us a deeper explanation as to why we don't do the things God wants us to do. So just take for an example. You know, think of those spiritual disciplines we so regularly beat ourselves up for, for skipping. You know, uh, maybe we've grown inconsistent with our church attendance or with our Bible reading or with prayer or with evangelism. Inconsistent with enjoying God, serving God, and loving God's people in all those ways. Now, just practically speaking, we would not skip over those spiritual disciplines if we planned for them. If we actually carved out time, scheduled it, kept to it, rearranged our activities to keep with it. But instead, we skip over them. We give a variety of excuses. Hey, life is just crazy right now. Sometimes it is, yeah. We'll say we'll get to it as soon as we can. Y'all, if God is our priority, then we would plan for those disciplines. I'm not saying there aren't exceptions, but we plan for and make time for what we feel is most important. We plan for and make time for what we feel is most important. Think about this for me. I love breakfast. Maybe you've heard me tell you of my love for breakfast before, but I'm going to tell you again because I love breakfast. I love breakfast so much that I arrange my evenings and mornings so that I can go to bed early and get up early so I have enough time for breakfast, so I have enough time to make eggs. You know why? Because I love eggs. (laughs) Eggs are so good. Now, maybe you love sleep more than you love breakfast, so you plan and rearrange your time based on that. That's not what works for me. The point is, we plan and rearrange our time and our activities based on our priorities. So your plans, your activities throughout this week, have they shown a priority for the Lord? And how will your plans change this week to more reflect that priority of the Lord? Are you willing to rearrange? Are you willing to plan ahead? Are you willing to cut things out? Bad plans. They're more than a bad way to put together a cabinet from Ikea. Bad plans show bad hearts. Hearts that are presumptuous. Hearts that have wrong priorities. Now, there's only one verse where James gives an alternative, a clear alternative to all that he said is bad in this section. That's verse 16. Notice verse 16 again. It says, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If we just take that verse and pretty much take the opposite of all that James has been talking about, we can get closer to discovering the kind of good heart that makes good plans. So just like the bad, uh, bad heart, we'll give two major characteristics. Uh, first characteristic of a heart that makes good plans. You may have guessed it. It's humility. A heart that makes good plans is a humble heart. It's a heart that acknowledges our limits. It's a heart that's the opposite of presumptuous. This is a heart that is deeply aware that there is so much about tomorrow that is unknown, that life is really, really short, and that there is so much out of our control. It is a heart that is deeply aware of all those truths. (coughs) Now, let's be clear about what James isn't saying here. 
James is not saying that we should acknowledge our limits to the point where we just give up in general. He's not saying that we acknowledge our limits to the point where we just don't plan at all. You know, Christians are not those who say, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. We do not take this verse, verse 16, as, you know, the anti-life insurance verse. No, Christians don't say that it doesn't matter we plan because there's so much out of our control. No, the Lord tells us other places in the Bible, God tells us to be good stewards. He tells us to take care of things that he's given us, take care of the gifts he's given us. And friends, being a good steward involves planning. It involves planning ahead. We even see another verse, again, in Proverbs. Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. So just because we are humble and acknowledge our limits does not mean we slip into apathy and laziness. It doesn't mean we don't plan at all. So that's not what James is saying. But neither does James say here that we should acknowledge our limits to the point that we are paranoid and anxious and worry all the time. And we can see how this might work, right? So much about tomorrow that we don't know and we can't do anything about, and that could very well paralyze us into fear and worry. What job will I have? Where will we end up? Where will we live? How am I going to get out of debt? Who is going to take care of me? Who is going to love me? Who is going to be president? What about the national debt? What about North Korea? What about climate change? Question after question after question of uncertainty, worry, and anxiety. Acknowledging our limits, that we don't control everything, that we don't know what's ahead, does not mean we slip into anxiety and panic. But what does it mean? What does it mean to be humble and acknowledge our limits? Because I think it means just a humble awareness that as for much as we plan, our lives could be radically different tomorrow. For as much as we work and as much as we are good stewards, there's still a lot outside of our control. This is the heart that knows for as much as we think about tomorrow and plan ahead for tomorrow, tomorrow's not here yet. So we live in today. It's a heart that means we actually listen to all the times that God shows us our limits. If we pay attention, friends, that's every single day. So if presumption means holding our plans with a closed hand, trying to protect them and and care for them and thinking that I'm just going to make them happen by myself, a heart of humility that makes good plans holds plans with open hands. Just care for them, try to carry them along, but is open to them being changed and realizes that there is a lot that could change it. So imagine how much less panic and anxiety you would have if you did that on the front end. Instead of your hands being pried open, if you held your plans with an open hand now. Imagine how much panic and anxiety that would save you. But what is it, though, friends, that allows us to acknowledge our limits, approach the future with humility, and uh, walk with our plans with open hands? What allows us to do that without freaking out and without giving up? Well, the question isn't what allows us to do that. The question is who allows us to do that. That's the second characteristic of a heart that makes good plans. That is trust. 
trust. Good plans come from a heart that trusts the Lord. Very simple, I know. When it comes to planning, thinking about our future, trusting God shows up in at least three ways. Heart of good plans, trust the Lord. It shows up in the way that we trust the goodness of God's plan. Trusting God with our plans means trusting the goodness of God's plan. What James says in verse 16 again. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So this is the heart, not just only what we went over recently, that we acknowledge our limits. This is also the heart that trusts that there is nothing outside of God's limit. There is nothing that God does not control. There is a lot that we don't control, but there is nothing God does not control. This is the heart that acknowledges that for as much as we plan, the Lord directs our path, often in ways we don't expect, often in ways we do not choose on our own. Now, friends, there's a, a popular narrative of God giving us our best life now, uh, and so we should not presume to believe what God has not promised us. The truth is, God has given us a good life now. There are many blessings to enjoy. We can enjoy God's presence now. We can enjoy peace and joy right now. But our best life is not yet here. And the good that God has promised us now, that good does not mean it is easy. Good does not equal easy. Good often equals hard. Something that James has said earlier in his letter. A heart that makes good plans is a heart that trusts God's good plan. So we remember Proverbs 3, 5 to 6, a well-known verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Remember Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So this heart that trusts God's good plan does not just have those verses stitched on a throw pillow, does not just have those verses thrown up as a post on Facebook, does not just throw on Lord willing to the end of every sentence. No, the heart that trusts God's good plan has that trust as a deep-seated, everyday, moment-by-moment, living, breathing reality. Trust God's good plan. But you see, trusting that God controls everything, that only works. It only works to give us confidence and peace if we are convinced of God's character, of his competence, of his ability. That's the only way it works. Because if we believe that there is some kind of moral blind spot in God's character, or if there is some lack of wisdom in God, or if there is some area just beyond God's reach, then that phrase from verse 16, if the Lord's will, loses so much of its strength if we have any doubts about God's good character. So we remember the words from Jesus from Matthew 6. He says, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We are convinced of those words, ultimately, because there was one tomorrow where Jesus knew exactly what was in store for him. He knew what was ahead. A tomorrow where the one who controls all things would lay down his life, be forsaken by God, and die for the sins of everyone who believes in him. 
having went through all that, there was another tomorrow still. And three days later, after he died, he rose from the dead. And having done all that, Jesus assures his people that since he was forsaken by God, took the punishment we deserve, that we will never be forsaken by God. Having done all that and rising from the dead, he says this proves once for all that he is Lord, King, the one who controls everything, the one who holds it all together, the one who has a plan for all of it, the one who's going to come back and make it all right. This is the good, wise, powerful, loving God who has the plan we can trust. So friend, if your Lord really did all that and really is all that, you can trust him for all that you don't control. If your Lord really did all that and really is all that, you can trust him for eternity. You can trust him for your soul. If you can trust him for that, why can't you trust him for tomorrow? A heart that makes good plans and thinks about the future well is a heart that trusts God. Now that shows up that we trust God's good plan. It also means it shows up that we trust God enough to have God's priorities as our own priorities. So all of our plans, all of our work, all of our goals are no longer driven by the bottom line. No longer driven by our own selfish pursuits. You know what they're driven by now? God's glory. We've been given God himself. Tell me, who or what is better? God himself. Who or what is a better priority? Who or what is better or more worth living for? God himself. So having God as our priority, we might not think of it in this way, but it's going to lead us to treat lesser priorities better. It will lead us to take better care of them. So seriously, when money or family or position or freedom or power no longer have the place of God in your heart, then you can just treat all those things as good gifts when God chooses to give them to you because you already have the greatest gift of all. Having God as our priority will lead us to treat all of the lesser priorities as opportunities to give God glory. Not for selfish gain. All of the lesser priorities, not for selfish gain, but for God's glory. That's how a famous verse like 1 Corinthians 10, 31 works. It says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3, verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, trusting God enough to make him our highest priority. It's basically, friends, trusting God enough to follow him as our Lord. So think of how this might work, real life, for James's readers, okay? James's readers, if they no longer had money, making a profit as their ultimate priority, but instead the Lord. And friends, they would no longer so constantly be discontent with what they don't have, but be thankful for what God had chosen to give them. And when their Lord did bless them with profit, no longer would they use it for their own selfish gain. They already have all that they could ever need. They would be freed to use that profit to glorify God and bless other people. Switching of priorities. Trusting God means he is our ultimate priority. Friends, that's what's for our best good. 
Because unlike anything else here in this world, we can never lose God. He will never fade. We can have peace right now. And trusting God as our ultimate priority is what's best for the people around us. Friends, we treat people better and less selfishly when we love God first. Seriously. The heart that makes good plans, thinks about the future well, is a heart that acknowledges our limits. It's a heart that trusts God. It means we trust God to trust his good plan. Trust God enough to make him our ultimate priority. We trust him enough Friends, to follow through on what he says. To follow through on what he says and tells us to do. We made a similar point last week. The heart that loves God obeys God. The heart that loves God obeys God. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And this is all because we trust that God is good. That God knows what he's talking about. That God is worth following. So let's just say Let's just say you took basketball lessons. Maybe some of you in here need basketball lessons. Um, if you took basketball lessons from Michael Jordan, and Michael, they're free of charge, like how can I afford basketball lessons from Michael Jordan? This is a hypothetical scenario. We're not playing all that out. You took basketball lessons from Michael Jordan, and Michael Jordan told you to do this really weird drill that didn't make any sense to you. Friends, you should do that drill still. I don't care how weird you think that drill is. It's Michael Jordan. He absolutely knows what he's talking about. So friends, who knows more than God? The one who made everything. Trusting God means we don't skip over, over what he says to do. Means we follow what he says to do. We make plans for it. Even when everything in us tells us that it's weird that it's not natural, that it's too hard. We trust God enough to tell that it is good. His plans are good. What he says is good. Again, think of this situation James addresses, making a profit. The people here needed to trust God enough to follow him, even in what he says about money. Now that's hard, isn't it? I know people don't like to be told how to spend their money. It's just a reflection that people don't like to be told what to do in general. God says something different about money than what the world says. God says that the purpose of money is not to make us comfortable. He says it's an opportunity to take care of others and to show that our heart's been saved by his grace. It's an opportunity to show that our hearts no longer need money for security and for joy because we have all that we could ever want it in the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus. Imagine how radically different Christians in America would look if they had the attitude toward money that God tells us to. Imagine how much we would stick out. Friends, what are your plans? Are they good or are they bad? How do you think about the future? What does that show about your heart? If you're here, you don't believe, uh, you don't know if you believe what we've been saying this morning. You don't know if you believe this passage. You don't know really what you think about Jesus. I wonder how you go about your plans. 
I wonder if you acknowledge your limits. I wonder what your plans reveal about where you find satisfaction and security and hope or where you hope to find satisfaction, security, and hope. I wonder what your plans reveal about your priorities, what you want and love the most and think is the most important. If you're here this morning, you don't know whether or not you believe in Jesus, whether or not you believe in this passage. I wonder what you thought about the passage of Scripture we read earlier in the service, Luke chapter 12. You remember how this parable from Jesus closes? He asks this very powerful question. He asks, what if your, uh, your life is required of you tonight? What if that was the case for you? If your life would be required of you tonight, would you be ready? Knowing tomorrow is unpredictable. Knowing it is not guaranteed is why the Bible says in another place, Today is the day of salvation. The Bible says in another place still, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved other than Jesus Christ. So today, friend, is the day of salvation. Today, trust in Jesus alone to be accepted by God because Jesus lived the perfect life that we didn't. Today, trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus died for all of those times we had those wrong priorities, for all of our living for ourselves. Jesus died for that. Friend, today, trust Jesus enough to follow him as Lord, making him the ultimate priority in your life. I ask you, who is better? So here is good news. You can get in on this today. Today. If you want to know more about what that means, we would love to talk to you about that. Grab my ear afterwards. Uh, Bill's an elder, Don's an elder, Dean's an elder, um, or anybody else here who seems to think they know what they're doing. Um, talk to them. So James 4, 13 to 17. It's written to Christians. Fellow Christians, we can plan and think of the future in a decidedly unchristian way, can't we? So in this passage, God speaks to each of us. In this passage, God speaks to us who are young. Students, young people, I'm going to include myself in that. We are always told to look ahead, but do not get caught up in that so much that you do not live in today. We are told to build our plans based on what will give us the most advancement, what, what will do us the most good. Friends, Let's build our plans based on what will give God the most glory, how we can be used by God the most. God's going to take care of the rest. And friends, those who are young, hold your plans with open hands because God will change them. I promise you, God will change them. And when he does, you remember that he loves you and he knows more than you. God speaks to us in this passage who feel that their best days are behind them who long for a previous season of life. Friend, God is no less loving or present now than he was then. Friend, don't underestimate how God can work in you and through you now if you have him as your highest priority. Don't underestimate that. In this passage, God speaks to us who don't like their present who don't like their circumstances today. God speaks to us here. Us who don't like their job, 
who are waiting, who are frustrated, who are hurting. And when this is the case, we can either despair, we could try to control all that we can control and make tomorrow even better, or we can just be racked with anxiety. Today, those who don't like their presence, would you settle your heart in the goodness and care of your Lord? I love that line we sang earlier from Praise to the Lord, the Almighty. It says, ponder anew, ponder, think about it afresh, in a new way. Ponder anew what the Almighty, the Almighty God can do if he loves you. What the Almighty can do if he loves you. Do that today. And from there, yes, make your plans. Seek help. Work hard. Keep going. But do this as one who is grateful for God's grace today. God speaks to us in this passage speaks to us who are still feeling the sting of not knowing what tomorrow will bring, who are still feeling the shock of the unexpected, whose plans change drastically. But if that is you today, your Father cares for you still. Jesus is still risen from the dead. God's plan is not thwarted. You may not know how you'll get through tomorrow, but God will not leave you for tomorrow. And his grace is sufficient for you today. It's been famously said that we don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know who holds tomorrow. And what difference can knowing that make? A theologian from Princeton, an old dead guy, B.B. Warfield, he asked a similar question. He asked what, the difference, uh, what difference the truth of the first question to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, knowing that, would make. That first question is, what is the chief end of man? You may know it to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What difference does that make? What difference does it make to know God holds tomorrow and is in control of all of it? Well, B.B. Warfield answered it in this way. He told the story is we have the following bit of personal experience from a general officer of the United States Army. He was in a great western city at a time of intense excitement and violent rioting. This could have been the San Francisco earthquake in 1906, but Warfield doesn't say. The streets at the time were overrun daily by a dangerous crowd. And one day, this army officer observed approaching him a man of singular calmness, whose very demeanor inspired confidence. So impressed was he with this other man's bearing amid the surrounding uproar that when he had passed, he turned to look back at him, only to find that the stranger had done the same. On observing the turning, the stranger at once came back to the officer and touching his chest with his forefinger, demanded without preface, what is the chief end of man? On receiving the countersign, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Ah, said he, I knew you were a shorter catechism boy just by your looks. <laughs> Why, that is just what I was thinking about you, was the rejoinder. Planning for what's ahead in a way that's humble, in a way that trusts God. Friends, that's more than convicting because we don't do it. Knowing that is liberating. It should be life-giving. It should be stabilizing. A deep-seated trust in the good, wise, loving God who lived, died, and rose again for you is what allows you to work hard, to plan, while going through this chaotic world full of twists and turns and unexpectedness with a steadiness 
with a calm, friends, even with a joy. How much do we need that today? In a world that's gone crazy, a world that panics, the first sense of danger. A heart that looks ahead in humility and trusts God joins David in praying and resting in the truth, that sweet truth. My times are in your hands, O God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in response to your word, we say we trust you. And God, we say also, we want to trust you more. Today, this day, September 29th, 2019, this is the day we have. Today, we don't have tomorrow yet, but we trust that you know what's coming. We don't. But God, we trust that you are good, that Jesus died for us, that Jesus rose again, and nothing can ever change that. We trust, God, that you are wise and loving, and you do not change. So God, if we trust you, would you help us to trust you with tomorrow, with all that we don't control? Would you lessen our laziness, our apathy? Would you give us confidence? Would you give us stability? Because we are people who trust the good God. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.